All righty. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn over to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read uh, just a handful of verses today, verses 13 through 17. Uh, I think you will see very quickly as I read what the theme will be today. So I won't even say a word. I'm just going to go right into reading and preaching. All right, let's read together. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners uh, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I think all of us have had an experience in our lives, or two or three or several, where we were at a place and felt out of place. Have you ever been there? Uh, sometimes you get there and it's because you feel less than. Uh, maybe you're at a party with more wealthy people than you or people who are smarter than you, you feel at least, and you just feel like you don't fit in and you don't have any common ground or conversation to make with people. You feel very out of place. Or it could go the opposite way. Uh, you could be, maybe in your younger years, you were invited to a party where things were going on that you didn't necessarily, your mama told you not to do them, you know, and in your heart, you knew, you felt it, I'm not, at, I'm not in the right place. Things are going on here that just don't match my moral standards, and I feel like I'm just antsy to get out. Well, think of that feeling, because... The religious leaders, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was having a party, a dinner party with sinners, people who are very well known and notoriously known as sinners, they accused him of being out of place, but Jesus himself did not feel out of place. Now think about that. How can it be that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who is holy, 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 the one who has no sin. How could it be that when he was sitting at this particular table with these particular sinners of deepest dye, he did not feel out of place with them at all? He was right there with them. What a miracle. Uh, last week we saw Jesus came for sins, and that kind of set up what we're going to talk about today. But today we're going to see something even greater. Jesus came for sinners. It's going to get personal this morning. Jesus came for people who are sinners so that he can take them and bring those people into table fellowship with God himself. Look at your bulletin. And there, there are three things we see Jesus doing for sinners or with sinners. First of all, Jesus calls sinners, verses 13 and 14. Then Jesus eats with sinners, verse 15. And lastly, Jesus addresses self-righteous sinners, verses 16 and 17, all right? Y'all ready? First of all, Jesus calls sinners. Look at verses 13 and 14. 
Uh, Jesus was out by the sea. The same uh, pattern that we have seen already in Mark's gospel. Jesus loves to preach. He loves to teach. That's his main activity. But it wears him out because all these crowds are always coming to him and he's preaching, teaching, healing, interacting with people all the time. And so from time to time, he withdraws to a more, you know, more, less crowded place. And so this time he goes by the sea, the lake of Galilee. But as happens very frequently, the crowd hears about it and they follow him out there and there he is again teaching. Uh, They're always interrupting Jesus' vacation. They're always interrupting his weekend, you know. And he doesn't cast them away. Instead, he patiently continues to teach them. Now, the most amazing thing is what happens when he's done for the day and he walks back into town. And as he's walking along that road by the lake, he sees, it says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he says to that man, follow me. And that man rises up and leaves everything and follows him. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, at a tax booth. Now, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, teaches us that Levi was a Jew. His name is Jewish. Levi is a very Jewish name. Alphaeus also, his father's name, or grandfather's, or whoever, was a very Jewish name. He's a Jewish person. And yet, he's sitting at a tax booth. A very un-Jewish thing to do at that time. Now, when I say tax collector today, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I heard a few groans, maybe a little, you know, you know, uh, you think IRS, maybe you think, well, here they come again, you know, wanting to get more, taxes are, are rising, I don't like that, I don't want to pay taxes. We think unpleasant things, but we don't think they are a traitor to God things usually. We usually don't accuse them of that. Uh, maybe you do, I don't know, but most of the time we don't. In their day, however... For a Jewish person to be a tax collector was that very thing. Um, Remember, Israel was not an independent nation like we are. They were under the Roman rule. And Romans ruled in the following way. They split their kingdom up into little kingdoms. They put puppet governors and kings over the people. And they they picked native people to, to collect the taxes so that uh, the person collecting the taxes would look like and sound like the people they were collecting from but they were collecting for three different people. They were collecting for the Caesar at the very top. They were collecting for the regional governor, somebody like Pontius Pilate. And they were collecting for themselves. Because part of the deal is, hey, if you'll be a tax collector and turn your back on your people, you can take some extra and become wealthy through it. And tax collectors were very, very wealthy people. Considered to be traitors not only to the nation, but traitors to God. Uh, Israel was a state, but it was also a church at the same time in those days. It was the people of God. And so for them to turn their back on the people of God to collect money for themselves and for some foreign overlord was almost the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And, And so that's what makes this story so amazing. Is Jesus is walking from teaching the gospel and he sees a Jewish man sitting in a tax booth and instead of hissing, And cursing and throwing rocks, all of which were probably done routinely by Jews against tax collectors. Instead, he comes up 
And he says, follow me in the same way that he had called James and John and Peter and Andrew the chapter before. Now, the thing about these five call stories, by the way, these are some of the only call stories we have. There were 12 disciples, but we don't get a personal story about how all 12 of them were called to Jesus. We only get about six or seven. And these five that we've gotten so far in in Mark are a good sample set of what every gospel writer tells you. Here's why. The other four, Peter and and, uh, Andrew and James and John, two sets of brothers, they were fishermen, remember? But they were also very religious Jews. Uh, In John, it tells us that they already followed John the Baptist, already, which was how they learned about Jesus in the first place. Because they were listening to good old John, And John told them about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they started following Jesus. So you might think when you read about their call that, okay, I get it. I know what Christianity is about. Jesus, God, looks out and finds the people with potential. He finds all the religious people that have some good, you know, clay to work with. He goes to them, he calls them, and he helps them realize their potential. And then you get to the story of Levi. And the brakes go... Because here you have an example of God clearly picking a man for reasons other than the potential that that man has in the eyes of God or in the eyes of people. He's picking a hated man. He's picking an obvious, notorious sinner. And in the same way that those good religious good old boys had followed Jesus when he called them. So does Matthew. By the way, Levi's other name is Matthew. That's why I'm going to, sometimes I'll interchange them. Don't let it confuse you. Levi is Matthew. Matthew is Levi. He wrote the first gospel. Uh, the reason we know that is Matthew in Matthew's gospel calls himself Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, rather than Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So he goes by both names. When we get to his story, what we see is this. Jesus doesn't simply call people because of some kind of potential they have. He calls people for his own mercy and grace. And, by the way, Peter and Andrew and James and John are going to have to learn that they needed the same Levi treatment too. It did not seem that way outwardly because they were good old boys. Levi was terrible. And yet they're going to learn over time when Jesus called us he was also having to use the same almighty grace that he had to use when he called Levi. And when he chose to call us, he used that same grace that looked past our sins to call us that he had to use for that man. The Bible says there is no one righteous among human beings. None. And the Bible makes very little difference between those who are obviously sinners or notoriously, or another word I like to use is technicolor sinners. Those whose sins precede them. Uh, the, the, the adulterers, the murderers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors in this day, the, the people that you look at and you think, yep, that's a sinner, I know it when I see it. The Bible makes very little difference between that and the person who is a quiet, good old boy sinner inside. And it makes this verdict upon everybody. All of you are sinners. And all of you can only be saved by grace. Levi's an example because Levi was not preparing for Jesus' call. 
He was, as far as we know, he wasn't asking for it. He was making bank. Every single day as a tax collector, he was living his best life now. And yet Jesus came and called him. And the power of Jesus' call was so great that Levi too went. Isn't that amazing? Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a job interview? And at the end of that job interview, they said, don't call us, we'll call you. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that usually mean? Uh, they're probably not going to call. Even if they are going to call, though, at least means this. I'm going to have to wait it out. It's, the ball's not in my court. It's in their court. And I'm going to have to humbly just wait by the phone and see what happens. I, there's nothing I can do now. I've done all that I can do. The ball is in their court. That is the way, y'all, the call of Jesus always is. It always is that way. Uh, grace is all, the ball of grace is always in God's court. It's not in yours. Which matters because when we tell our stories as Christians, sometimes we give ourselves way too much credit. We do. Don't, don't you think we do? We tell our testimony in a way that shows, man, you know, I had this potential. God saw something in me. God saw that he could use me powerfully, and so he, he picked me for his team because, man, what, what assets I had to bring to the table. Even if we don't say that exact words out loud, we, we tell our stories as if we're partly the heroes and Jesus is our sidekick, or maybe we're just the sidekick of Jesus, but in some way we're the Robin to his Batman. And actually a Christian testimony is always a Levi testimony. Always. It's not a you call me, it's a we'll call you. Because the ball of grace is always in the court of the one who shows the grace, not in the one who needs the grace. Or else it wouldn't be grace. Or else it would be me demanding God to do something for me that he owes me, which is not grace. That's, that's wages. And so the call of God is this powerful thing. Jesus here shows his power to choose Levi among all the others. He chooses the worst uh, his power to liberate Levi from his sins, just by, the war, by his word. He shows his power to make demands of Levi's life. Leave everything. Follow me. And I want you to know that when we come to tell our Christian stories, we need to make much of that. We need to make much of Jesus and his power rather than trying to make much of our part, what little it was that we played in it. When someone comes to Jesus, they bring one thing to the table, surely, sin. Who wants to boast about that? I don't think Levi was tempted to boast about that. Now, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they were, and, and we're going to see as the story goes on, they're always trying to have it both ways. Jesus, tell us, who is the greatest among us? They're going to say later in the gospel, which one of us is the best disciple? I don't think Levi was ever in that conversation. And Peter, James, and John ought not to have been. And by the time they died, they weren't anymore. They weren't doing that foolishness because they knew that everybody needs the Levi call. Amen? Everybody needs the Levi call. That's the first thing. Jesus calls sinners. Secondly, Jesus eats with sinners. He eats with sinners. Now, 
Sometimes in our culture, you end up eating with somebody just because you have to, but you don't want to. Um, for example, at work during lunchtime, the whole office goes to lunch. Do you always want to eat with all the people? It's okay to be honest in church. You, I mean, maybe, hopefully, you have an office where you want to eat with everybody, but chances are at your office or at your workplace with your workmates, when you stop for lunch on your, your uh, various stops that you have to make, uh, you, you might be there with some people you wouldn't want to eat with under normal circumstances, but you do because you have to because you work together. That was not the way Middle Eastern culture was at all. And, and actually, it's not really the way Middle Eastern culture is today. Um, it was much more, if you share a meal with somebody, especially in your home, it was saying, I want to be associated with you. I approve of you, I accept you, and I want you to accept me. We are like family. That's what it meant. This is why Jewish people had such elaborate laws about who they could eat with and who they couldn't. We may look at that and be like, wow, that seems just snobby. To them, it was an issue of principle. If I eat with you, that means I'm saying I'm, I'm your family. And I can't do that with a Gentile. I can't do that with a tax collector. I can't do that with a prostitute. I can't do that with the types of people that the world would look at and say, seedy, shady. And yet notice, this is the beautiful thing. Notice that Jesus is eating with them by choice. And he's not batting an eye about it. You say, well, how do you know he's not batting an eye? Well, look at how it phrases it. Look at it. As he reclined at table in his house, that's Levi's house. Luke's gospel tells us Levi threw this dinner party in celebration of what Jesus had done for him. And Jesus enters the house of a tax collector and doesn't stand by the door uncomfortably waiting for his moment to get out like we might do. He's not sitting on the edge of his seat checking his watch because, ooh, there's some crazy people here. Jesus is reclining at the table with the other sinners who are reclining at the table with his disciples. That word recline, that, that was the way people in the Greco-Roman world dined, especially when they were doing fine dining occasions. Like when it was a fine dining occasion, the table was low to the ground and everybody kind of leaned in, like laying on their side. I know that seems super weird to us. For my own two cents, that seems very uncomfortable. But that's the way they did it. What it was supposed to illustrate was the intimacy and the nearness of the shared meal. It was supposed to represent the comfortableness. I mean, who do you recline with? Think about that. In our culture, not very many people. I mean, may, uh, hopefully, actually, one person that you recline with, because <laughs> our culture thinks about that in a, even a different way, as even more intimate than they thought about it then. Intimacy, acceptance, he's comfortable. He's not batting an eye. I can imagine the other disciples probably were batting an eye. I mean, can you imagine Simon Peter and Andrew and those guys and their thoughts? Woof. John the Baptist wouldn't have done this. What would my grandmother say? Right? 
you got to imagine. And Jesus is just, he's in his element. He's feasting with these people. Wow. What's that showing us? This is showing us the way that God treats sinners once he calls them. Once Jesus calls a sinner by grace and they come and follow him, it's game over on the old life. The new life has come. And the new life looks like sitting at a table in family-like fellowship with God himself and with the other people who are also gathered in. It's the fellowship of forgiven sinners, a communion that we have with God. That's what it looks like. That's why Jesus saves us. That's how he treats us once he saves us. There's no, in Jesus' mind, there is no question about the old life. He's not judging them by their old life, even though that old life may have been only two minutes old. He doesn't count them as if they're on probation in his kingdom. Instead, what he does is he brings them all the way in immediately and starts treating them like they're the new person. Isn't that good? It's what we, what, we, it's what we sung earlier. We sang it, rather, in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. He satisfies our soul with good things. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And that's this. He is not treating these people like their sins deserve. He's treating them like their new creation status in Christ deserves. Now notice, Jesus is not affirming their sin by doing this. Okay, that's a very big difference here. And, and we know that because of the phrase used there in verse 15 again. Uh, there were many tax collectors and sinners, for there were many who followed him. You see? Follow him. Um, Jesus does not, of course, eat with sinners who won't come eat with him. That makes sense, right? If, you're, if a sinner won't come eat with Jesus, he won't eat with them. But for all sinners who will come and eat with him, who will receive the call, he eats with them as if nothing ever happened. As if they had not done anything wrong their whole lives long. He reclines at the table with them as they recline with him. What a beautiful thing. Is it not? There was once uh, that the great church father, Augustine, we call him St. Augustine or St. Augustine. He lived a really sinful life before he became a Christian. Um, all the things you can imagine, partying, abusing substances, ambitious, sexually immoral and promiscuous. He became a Christian and ended up becoming a pastor in northern Africa. And one day, uh, as he was walking through the streets of his hometown, after he had become a pastor, years later, uh, he ran into one of the prostitutes that he had known in an intimate way in his earlier life. And she came up to him and greeted him by his name, Augustine. And he kind of got a little uncomfortable. And she said, Augustine, it's I, it's me. And Augustine's response was, yeah, but it is not me. It's no longer I. I'm no longer the old Augustine. I'm the new. And how did he learn that, right, by the way? How did he learn that? Did he learn that because he got to be perfect and never sinned? No. He learned that because from the moment he was called by Jesus, he was treated like this. 
And people who are treated like this by Jesus over and over again in their life begin to take on the new self and begin to put off the baggage associated with the old self. It takes time, but it happens. And, it, and this is telling us in God's mind, in God's heart, it happens immediately. Old self, done. Old self, gone. This is the great news about following Jesus. You want to hear some good news this morning? When you decide to follow Jesus and you listen to his call, your life is over. It's great news. Your life is done. You're done for. If you don't think that's good news, you don't know yourself very well. And you don't know yourself as God, the holy God, sees you. Because what you need is your old self to die and a whole new self to come alive. And when that happens and when you're treated that way, something amazing happens. And so, y'all, let's think about this. As a church, I believe the church ought to look like Levi's table. I really do. It ought to look like Levi's table. Again, doesn't mean that the church affirms sin. It is a very common misunderstanding in our culture today that in order to accept someone, you must affirm everything they think, say, and do. I actually am not sure exactly where that comes from other than just an obsession with having ourselves puffed up by other people. It's a true obsession. And the Bible actually is not very obsessed by that. The Bible is obsessed by what God thinks, not by what people think. And so it's totally untrue. That to receive someone as a friend, you have to affirm everything they do. That's, that's a crazy thought, actually. Uh, imagine if God affirmed everything I ever thought, said, and did, even when I was a teenager. Or you were a teenager. I mean, what if that were true? That's scary, y'all. And yet we have, haven't we, developed and cultivated a culture that is soft on sin and we pretend like that's love for sinners when really what love for sinners is is hey you got to follow Jesus but if you follow Jesus there's a seat at this table for you and there's no probation period it's not like you're the worst sinner in town sit over there for a while until you prove yourself and then come if you'll follow Jesus you may be the worst sinner in town but you got a spot right next to Jesus he's reclining and you can recline right there with him no questions asked your old self no longer there new self here Amazing. I want to tell you too, heaven is going to be like Levi's table. <laughs> is it not? Uh, the Bible says in heaven there's a banquet table. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that table, people are going to come from east and west and north and south. Jesus says later in Mark's gospel, the prostitutes and the tax collectors will be there. Not because they were prostitutes and tax collectors but because they followed Jesus and Jesus wiped their past away and gave them a new life. Wow. If heaven's going to be like that, if the church should be like that, our hearts need to become like that. Welcoming, open, recognizing that God is a forgiving God. Sometimes we've got to recognize that for ourselves. Sometimes we carry the weight of our sins longer than God does. 
He casts them as far as the east is from the west, and yet we continue to shame ourselves and guilt ourselves rather than letting the blood of Jesus speak to our conscience. We're listening to Jiminy Cricket instead of Jesus, right? That's what we need to do. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse the conscience. You have a seat at the table. If this is true, this also means why we're here, y'all. This is a reminder of why we're here. If the church is like Levi's table, they were at Levi's table to have fellowship with Jesus. That's the purpose of the church, to have fellowship with God. That's going to be our life's, eternity's business in heaven, to have fellowship with God. We ought to do that. Any other thing we put in that place, we're going to end up selling ourselves short. Even if it's something noble, even if we say the church is there to help neighbors. Yeah, it is. But we can only help neighbors in any special way. I mean, we can help them like the Kiwanis Club helps them. But we can only help them in a Jesus way when we've been with Jesus. And so therefore, the purpose of the church is not first helping neighbors. The purpose of the church is being with Jesus. And then we help the neighbors as we're with Jesus. We welcome the neighbors. They can come be with Jesus too. And we're going to go out to them if they're not. And we're going to still love them and be kind to them and bless them. Does that make sense? Levi's table, the church, heaven. Jesus eats with sinners. That's wonderful. Thirdly, Jesus addresses self-righteous sinners. It seems like, did you notice how (laughs) even though Levi was the host of the meal because it was at his house, very quickly Jesus starts to act like the host? Like As you're reading it, you get the sense that Hmm. pretty sure Levi is not in charge here. And, and he's also not the one uh, picking who comes and goes. Uh, clearly, Jesus is. And the one group of people who aren't at the table are who? The scribes of the Pharisees. Scribes, verse 16, means they were students of the Bible. They studied the Bible. So studying the Bible doesn't get you to heaven. Studying the Bible doesn't get you a seat at the table of Jesus. Now, that's not a speech against studying the Bible. I I actually, that's my life. I love it. It's it's, literally my favorite thing. But that alone won't get you to Jesus if the Holy Spirit's not working in you. Let me say it another way. That, studying the Bible won't get you to Jesus if you insist on being self-righteous. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They knew the Bible... They twisted it. Yes, they had a very bad misunderstanding of the Bible, but they knew it, and a lot of what they knew was true. But in their hearts, they were living by self-righteousness instead of God's righteousness. They thought people basically come to God by their own resume. And people don't get to come to God if their resume is not good enough. And so when they looked at this meal going on in Levi's house, they thought, what in the world? How can he eat there? Because in their minds, the only reason you would ever eat with sinners is if you were affirming their sin. The only reason you would ever affirm their sin is if you didn't want them to change. But of course, that was a very bad bad logic, wasn't it? Because here is Jesus not affirming their sin wanting them to change, and yet he's eating with them because he's affirming the fact that they have indeed changed through his call. That they are new people. 
who've been given a new life. That's the reason why Jesus' answer in verse 17 is so powerful. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible that Jesus speaks. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus compares himself to a doctor. Now, think about this. What if someone came up to a doctor and said, hey, doc, you're a hypocrite. You talk like you care about public health and you're just all about health and there you are all day hanging out with a bunch of sick people. <laughs> Hypocrite. You don't care about public health. You're just, all you spend all your working day with sick folks. What would you think about that? Well, for lack of a better word, that's dumb. <laughs> that's a dumb way to think because it's obvious, right? And Jesus is using this example to show them how obviously wrong they are. In fact, it, it is the doctor's concern for public health that makes them want to hang out with sick people all day long because they actually believe this other thing, that sick people can be made well. They believe in what the Bible calls redemption, healing, that someone who is sick today might be well tomorrow given the right medicine, given the right care. And in Jesus' mind, it's the same thing with us as sinners. Everybody's a sinner. But Jesus doesn't look at us and think, hey, the only thing I can do to love them is affirm them because they can't change. What a hopeless way to think. Jesus looks at us and says, oh, but they can change. The right care can be brought in. The right medicine can be applied. It'll be my blood. It'll be my spirit. It'll be my righteousness. It'll be my sweet fellowship as I recline every day at table with them. I will own them as my own. And they will learn to say with St. Augustine, it is no longer I. I'm a different man. I'm a different woman. Because Jesus has claimed me as his. If that's true, y'all, if, if verse 17 is true, the most dangerous sin is self-righteousness. It's worse than the prostitute, the thief, the murderer. Because self-righteousness is the one sin that works by convincing you that none of the other sins are yours. When Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, he can't mean that there is this group of people that are righteous that don't need me. It's not what he means. But the Bible says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. What Jesus means is, I have not come to call those who think they are righteous. Instead, I've come to call sinners. That is, I've come to call those who know that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And for them, I lay down my life. And for them, a table is set now and forever. And with them, if they come to me, I will recline at table and I will ask no more questions. I will receive them as if they were perfectly righteous by the miracle of grace. And yet... 
Self-righteousness is so deceptive. I, I think self-righteousness is the place where we see the devil's craftiness most displayed. Because not only does it deceive the person, it deceives me from thinking that all my other sins are real or that they're mine, but it also tends to only infect the people that are within the religious community, they're within the believing community. I mean, it's hard to be self-righteous if you're not on the good, the good team, right? And so it tends to be that sin that infects the very church itself. It, it gets into the table itself, and it needs to be always watched against. Always watched against. That's why Jesus gives his strongest words against it. That's why Paul gives his strongest words against it, because it's, it's a family sin of the people of God that we must continually repent of. No one gets a seat at the table with God because of their resume. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. The only way you get a seat at the table with God is by ripping up your resume and letting God put Jesus' resume into your file. And then you can come. Jesus says, follow me. And that's what he means when he says, follow me. Rip up your resume, come to me. When you accept Jesus, your life is over. That's good news. Because when your life is over, your resume is over, then you have an empty file folder to receive his resume. And then you got a place with Jesus. He calls sinners, he eats with sinners, and he even addresses self-righteous sinners to recover them from their self-righteousness. Because you've got to watch this too. Being self-righteous against the self-righteous. <laughs> this is how, how subtle Satan is in this area, right? I mean, sometimes we can be like so, oh man, I'm so glad we're not the self-righteous kind of church. <laughs> I would hate to be one of those self-righteous Christians. Woo. And there it goes. There it is again. Self-righteousness. Word of advice. Come to the physician. <laughs> which means you believe you're sick. Which means it's time to rip up your resume and live off his alone. Amen?